0: have your Bible this morning, turn again to the book of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, begins in verse 27 saying, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or remain absent. I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Which is a sign of destruction for them. But of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Beloved, as we come to this passage this morning, I think we all know as Christians that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ before others in this world. And it is true that we represent him personally, we represent him individually, and how we live our lives for God. But as we come to this passage this morning, we're going to see from the words of Paul that it also matters how we live our lives together for the cause of the gospel. That is, we represent Christ before the community around us and how we are able to live together as the body of Christ. If you stop and think about it, one of the pictures that the Bible gives us about the church is is that the church is described as being a family. The church is referred to as being the household of God. The Bible refers to us as the brethren. The Bible speaks about those who are the fathers, the spiritual fathers, the little children that are in the church. And that's not talking about physical fathers or physical little children, but in those cases, again, just making reference to the family terms of those who make up the body of Christ. So we are to see ourselves as a family, and as a family, we are to live with one another in a way that is honoring, that is worthy of the life-transforming message of the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul is wanting to remind the church at Philippi about this morning. And the words that we just read there, verses 27 to 30. And this is a challenge not only for them of that day, but for us today as God is giving us this passage and this message for our day and time. It's interesting when you really look at what Paul is saying there where he says, whether I come and see you or remain absent. Now we understand because we've been going through the book of Philippians that the reason why Paul is not there at this time is because he's in prison. He's waiting to see if he's going to be released or or if he's going to be put to death. But he's telling them almost like the way a parent would talk to their child. I'm sure as parents you've all been there. You've all done this before. Before you drop your child off at someone's house or before you leave to go somewhere and know you're going to be gone for a while. You remind your kids that you expect them to live. You expect them to behave themselves as though you were there. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, whether I'm there or not, whether I get the opportunity to come to be with you again or not, when I hear about you, When I hear about your testimony as a church there at Philippi, this is what I want to hear about you. I want to hear how you are living life together in a way that you are honoring, you are uh, showing yourself worthy of this message that you preach. That you're preaching the gospel, a gospel that we say will change people's lives, transforms people's lives. And so you want to display that yourself. Notice he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul was very serious about this idea of living your life in a way that was worthy of the gospel. If you will, for a moment, go back just to the book of Ephesians, just one book back. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And in verse 1, again, Paul here is writing this. He's in prison. And in Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk, that is, live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Live worthy of the salvific call that God has issued to you. Go over, you will, now to the book of Colossians, just one book on the other side of Philippians. In Colossians chapter 1, He speaks in verse 9 about how he is just unceasing in his prayer for them. He's asking that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why is he doing this? Because he wants them to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects. He wants them bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. This is what it is to live or to walk in a manner worthy. Again, worthy of the Lord. Worthy of the calling of the Lord. Move over just a little bit further. Move over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in verse 10 he says, You are witnesses. And so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. There it is, that language of a family. Why was he doing this? Why were they living a life so devout, so upright, so blamelessly so that they were behaving the way they were towards each other? Why were they exhorting? Why were they encouraging? Why were they imploring each other as a father would his own child verse 12, so that you would walk, you would live in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Paul was very concerned It was a high priority in his life and in his ministry that the churches that he was involved in, that they were living this life together in such a way that it did reflect that salvific call of God upon their life, that it reflected the transforming message of the gospel of Christ. So this is what he's driving home here in Philippians. Let's go back to that in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is reminding them of this and we'll see this as we come towards the end of this but he's giving this reminder to them here in these verses because this is something that they have been doing and this is something that they have continued to do but he's starting to hear that there are some things that are beginning to creep into the church at Philippi, and it's starting to creep itself in, and as it's creeping in, he knows that this can cause harm to their living a life that is one of togetherness, one that would bring honor and glory to the gospel of Christ. He's beginning to hear that there's some selfishness going on in the church and there's some strife that's going on there in the church and he's going to actually address that as we continue to move through the book of Philippians. But before he begins to address it, he just gives this overall summary uh, summons to the church at Philippi. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how were they to do that? How are they to continue to do that? What is it he's wanting to hear about this church that would show and demonstrate that they are living a life that is worthy of the gospel? Well, one of the first things he wants to hear about them is that they are standing together for the gospel. They're standing firm together for the gospel. Look again at verse 27. Whether I come and see you or I remain absent, I will hear of you. And this is what he wants to hear. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. There's that oneness. There's that togetherness. But notice he says standing firm. This idea of standing firm is a military term that means to to stand firm or to hold one's ground. That is, don't leave your post. This is what Paul was telling them. Don't leave your post, even if it may cost you personally and it may cost you your life. This is a great reminder to us as well that we are in a spiritual war. And as a believer, you are a soldier in the army of Christ. In the church here, East Gina Baptist Church is where you are stationed at this time. And he's saying, stay at your post. Show up for your duty. Hold fast to your convictions, to the principles, regardless of the cost that may come your way. Don't back off. Don't back down. Now we see in one person a positive example of this and a poor example of this. The positive example of this same person is the person of Barnabas. Barnabas. If you recall, Barnabas was a man that traveled with the Apostle Paul. Barnabas was the man that helped Paul... Actually be able to come into association with the disciples because they were afraid of Paul even after he had got converted because they were still fearful of the things that he used to do and it was Barnabas who brought him in and, and told them look this man got radically saved he's been transformed he's a different person and Paul and Barnabas served the Lord together. And we find over in Acts chapter 15 in verses one and two there that there were some men that came in and began to teach that unless you are circumcised that you will not be saved. And it was Barnabas who stood up with Paul and they began to debate these men. They stood for the gospel because that was the distortion of the gospel of being saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And they stood together. So here is Barnabas. They're standing, standing firm for the gospel. But then, beloved, you go over to the book of Galatians, and in Galatians chapter 2, this is where Paul has to confront Peter because Peter was beginning to do some things that was distorting the gospel. That is, there were some men who came down teaching much the same things that Paul and Barnabas were standing against there in Acts chapter 15. And guess what it says? It wasn't just Peter Paul also mentions there that Barnabas got caught up in this. So here's Barnabas on one occasion standing for the gospel against this teaching that was distorting the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And then over in the book of Galatians, Barnabas gets caught up in that and he wasn't willing to stand firm and stand true to the gospel there until Paul comes on the scene and he confronts Peter to his face. But we are called to stand together in convictions about the purity of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel. Because please understand that when we do that, there will be resistance. There will be those that will oppose the true gospel, even here in the community of Gina, even here in LaSalle Parish. Do you remember how the church at Philippi was founded by the Apostle Paul? Go over, I want you to look at this again. Go over to Acts chapter 16. Go to Acts chapter 16. Paul comes into this area and the first people to get saved was Lydia and her household there in verses 14 and 15. Then you remember there was this slave girl that had the spirit of divination that kept following Paul around and and uh, this, this girl brought people there in the community uh, in the city of Philippi. She was very prosperous for them. And Paul finally got frustrated with her and And basically, cast out the spirit of divination that was there, and and obviously, that caused a major problem for these people because now she couldn't do what she was doing and she couldn't make them the money that she was making them. And what I want you to remind you of here is that when the gospel entered the city of Philippi, the gospel challenged the people's loyalty in two areas it challenged their loyalty. In their commercial prosperity and it challenged their loyalty in their community and that this community unity that they had, this sense of community that they had that was very strong there. Because notice what happens when the masters in verse 19 saw that their hope of profit was gone. See, now the gospel has come in and it's had an impact on the city of Philippi in that, in a commercial way. And so they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they brought them to the chief magistrates, so now they're getting the city officials involved. But notice how they appeal to them. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, because they're proclaiming customs which are not lawful to us to accept or to observe being Romans. There it is. They had this... Pride, the sense of community there in the city of Philippi, and they're saying they're coming in preaching this message, and this message is causing confusion in the city. It's disrupting the unity that we have. We have this wonderful unity and prosperity that's going on here in the city of Philippi. And these two guys have shown up and they're starting to preach this message. And there's people beginning to be changed because of this message. And guess what? That's having an impact on us in the prosperity of our town and in the unity of our town. They didn't like that fact. beloved. may I say there's nothing wrong There's nothing wrong with cherishing a community wanting to be uh, having prosperity. There's nothing wrong with a desire to have a sense of unity in a community. But beloved, we can't compromise the gospel in the name of commerce. We can't compromise the gospel in the name of community. We we can't do that. And this is what Paul is trying to remind them of here in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1. That our ultimate loyalty lies with Christ. And it lies with the cause of Christ. In fact, go back to Philippians 1. Because what's interesting is the word that Paul uses there. When he says to conduct yourselves... That idea of conducting yourselves there is the same word that he uses from the same word he uses over in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 when it speaks about our citizenship is in heaven. That word for citizenship there in the noun form in verse 20 of chapter 3 is in the verb form over here that we see in Philippians chapter 1. Why is it he uses that word? Because Paul knows that in standing firm And not leaving your post that their loyalties were going to be challenged. And he wanted to remind them that ultimately their citizenship and their loyalty is to the kingdom of God and to the cause of Christ. So when the gospel message and when the word of God goes against prosperity in the community and goes against unity in the community, he's saying you have to stand firm with the gospel. And don't move. And here Paul is just reminding them the convictions they are to have. That when the heat is on, don't back down. Don't back away. Don't back out. Stay at your post. Stand in the Lord. Stand firm in your faith, as he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Stand firm with the gospel and the truth, he says in Ephesians 6, in verses 13 through 17. There where he speaks about putting on the armor of God. Beloved, when the, when the darts start flying and the bullets start flying, he's saying just stand firm. Don't abandon your posts. Stay together. Be willing to stand up and be counted for the gospel. Be counted for the truth. So one of the ways he wanted to hear that they were living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is that they were standing firm together for the gospel. But there's a second way he wants to hear about them, and that is that they are also striving together for the gospel. Finish the rest of verse 27. That with one mind, there again that togetherness, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's interesting that when he says standing, he uses a military term. But here when he speaks about striving together, he uses an athletic term. The picture here is of people going out, laboring, working together, side by side, the same way a team goes out to take the field or to take the court. They have the game plan that's been given to them. The game plan is in place. And they go out on the field. They go out on that court to execute the game plan that has been given. And they go out there working together side by side. You see, we have to do more than just standing for the truth. Here the striving together is now. We begin to advance the gospel. We begin to move forward with the gospel out into the community. Notice, it's quite clear what is our goal, what we're striving together for. He says they're striving together for the faith of the gospel. The faith that comes from the gospel. You see, beloved, as we all gather here every Sunday, as we gather at different times on Wednesday nights and on other occasions... Everybody in this room may not agree when it comes to politics. We may not agree when it comes to social issues. We may not agree all on economic issues. We may not agree all on sports teams and things of that nature. But when it comes to the gospel... When it comes to the Word of God, He's saying here, strive together. That is, have the same game plan, the same approach, and go out and labor, working side by side. And the picture He says here is that they were all going to be a part of this. No one sits on the bench. There are no bench players. Everybody's in the game. And they're focused on the faith. The gospel. But this requires that there is a theological foundation as we desire to advance the gospel, there's a theological foundation that ties us together, is that game plan, that support system, that strengthens us, that moves us out. And when you think about that theological foundation for advancing the gospel, you understand a, a right understanding about God, a right understanding about man, that is his condition and his capabilities, a right understanding about Jesus, that is the, the person of Jesus, that is his deity, his humanity, his humanity, Is being a second person of the Trinity, the provision of Jesus, that is through his righteousness that he has provided for us through his perfect life and his death on the cross for our sins. We have this theological understanding of that and the path to Jesus, of this repentant faith, of turning from our sins and putting our trust, our faith alone in Jesus Christ. And not only that theological foundation of God and man and Jesus, but a theological uh, foundation of the response of man. And understanding, yes, there is the, the sovereignty of God in that, but there's the responsibility of man in that. And not moving one too far to one side or the other where somehow we think it's now our job to get to, to produce the converts. Beloved, this is the foundation. We go out understanding. We have this foundation and we strive together for the sake of the gospel. Beloved, it is work. It is striving. It is work to share the gospel. It is work, beloved, to maintain the purity of the gospel. We just read a moment ago just how hard it was for Barnabas and Peter. I mean, these are two great men of the faith. I mean, you want to talk about Peter. I mean, Peter is a man that was there before Paul was. Peter was a man that walked with Jesus for the three years of his ministry here on this earth. Peter was the man that got to be up on the Mount Transfiguration with Jesus. Peter was the man who went to the empty tomb. Peter was the man that was there on the day of Pentecost proclaiming the gospel, standing up boldly. Peter was a great, mighty man of God, but yet somehow he got caught up and he began to drift. And when he drifted, Paul came back to help him to understand because they were distorting the gospel, the purity of the gospel. But but it is hard. It's hard for our own life personally. It's hard for a church. It's hard for Christian schools. It's just hard for Christian organizations not to drift because we are constantly being bombarded with a false gospel. We're constantly being bombarded and promoted toward us just to give a little. Just give just a little bit. You don't have to be so serious about the deity of Jesus. You don't have to be so serious about the humanity of Jesus. You don't have to be so serious about Jesus being the only. Way. But see, he's he's reminding us keep striving. Strive. Stand and strive together for the gospel. Let's look at a third area. The third one I call they're sticking together for the gospel. Sticking together for the gospel. I think these build one on top of the other. That you stand. You won't give ground. But then you advance the gospel. And as you advance the gospel, beloved, you're going to start taking fire. And he's saying, stick together. You can't... Have everybody moving forward, and all of a sudden, half of the line turns around and starts running back. He said, You have to stick together. And where this comes across is here in verse 28, where he says, In no way alarmed by your opponents. The word, therefore, alarmed is a very interesting word, it means to be startled, to be spooked. And it's the picture of a horse that when a horse is is walking or riding along and it comes across something that startles it, the horse will bolt and run to get away from what it is that has startled him. And he's saying, don't be like that. When the opposition comes, when the opponents come, when the resistance comes, there's going to be a temptation to get spooked, to get startled by that, and want to sprint and run instead of moving forward in the battle to begin to retreat and go back. And he's saying, don't do that, just stick together. Stay the course. There's going to be opposition. When you begin to apply the gospel, when you begin to apply the word of God, there will be resistance. Resistance to what we are about, what we're standing for, what we're living for. But notice what he says. He says, don't get alarmed by it. Actually, it should strengthen you. When the opposition comes, it should actually strengthen you because of what is actually happening there in verse 28. This opposition is not something to spook you, but to strengthen you, to stick together and to stay with it because it is actually a sign of destruction for them, but a sign of salvation for you. And that's from God. This is a way that God gives you even some assurance of your salvation and assurance that you're going down the right road. Because whenever the opposition comes, that opposition is showing itself that they're on a path to destruction. But you're on a path to deliverance. They're on a path that's going to end in retribution. You're on a path that's going to end in relief. In fact, look over for a moment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 3, he's talking about how he's giving thanks to God for them because of their faith. It's greatly enlarged their love for each other. Therefore, verse 4, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So, I mean, they're in the midst of persecution. They're in the midst of afflictions for the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy. There's that idea of being considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you're suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed for our testimony to you was believed to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ Again, you notice this is tying this back in, even as he is there in the book of Philippians, with this worthiness of your calling, the worthiness of your salvation that God has given you. And he's saying, look, right now you're going through persecutions, you're going through afflictions, and this is a sign, this is a plain indication of God's judgment that's going to come down upon those who are inflicting this pain upon you that they will suffer the eternal destruction that is to come. And we know from last Sunday together that this eternal destruction is not that you will, someone will cease to exist, but they will ultimately be thrown into the eternal lake of fire or they will spend life there in eternal torment. As it says, they're out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. But that does, that's not what is promised for us. What is promised for us is relief. Joy, being with Christ. Oh beloved, I hope if you were following along that you read very carefully what it said there that God's going to deal out retribution to those who don't know him, to those who don't obey the gospel. Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you truly turned from your sins and put your trust in him? Is your life for Christ? Are you living for Christ? Does your life demonstrate that you are now a follower of Christ? Oh, beloved, if you're not, please understand there will be retribution. There will be a penalty to pay. You see, Christ has paid the penalty for you if you will put your faith in him, if you will turn to him, if you will trust him. But for us as believers, though in this life we will go through some difficult days and difficult times, you say and still stand, still strive, still stay and stick together because this is all a sign, this is proof that there is deliverance, there is relief that is coming for you. Now it may not happen, or the, the relief we may get may be from death and the ultimate glorification that we will get from being raised with the Lord. But Beloved, this is what God has called us to. And you know, this is what Jesus, in some sense, was talking about over in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 10 there, where he's talking about that you're going to be persecuted, you're going to have things happen to you, beginning in verse 24. And there what he says that, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. He says, therefore, everyone, in verse 32, who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And you read the context of that, and he's talking about a true disciple is someone that when the hostility comes and the opposition comes... That doesn't mean they may not fall sometimes and fail sometimes, but what will be the pattern of their life is that they won't back off. They will continue to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, continue to stand for Christ. They'll be willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, and just keep confessing Christ before men. I was reminded of that this week, uh, receiving an email from uh, Brother Ed Lacey who was out in India. He was over there to train pastors And not here in the recent past before he got there in this very church where he was there to to train pastors about proclaiming the gospel that some radical Hindus had come into the church and had beaten many of the church members there. And that after he left, the day after he left, in a little area not too far from where he was, there was a pastor who they came in and they beat him and they hung him in his own home and took his life. And yet, in the midst of all that, the people kept coming out to hear the gospel. They kept coming out to learn better how to proclaim the gospel because they understood that persecution should come, but they were going to confess Christ before men. This is what it's speaking about here. Confessing Christ before men. But that verse is there in the context. It's not talking about someone being willing to come forward at the end of a service to profess Christ. I know that because if you look at the context of what he's saying there. And secondly, we all know there's been plenty of people who've come forward to profess Christ in that way. And yet when it came down to it, they weren't willing to stand with Christ. Beloved, don't get startled by the opposition. Stay with the team. Stay together for the gospel. This is God's gracious way of giving us even an assurance of our salvation, of this future deliverance that is to come. And again, if you think back to the, go back to the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus encouraged his disciples when he sent them out by two, he encouraged them to stay with it He let them know up front, there's going to be opposition. That's why he told them, there's going to be some towns you come into, and when you come into those towns, they're not going to receive you, they're not going to receive your message. And he says, you go out of the town, and you knock the dust off your feet, and you just move on to the next one, and you just stay with it and keep proclaiming the gospel. When you look back at the early church, yes, the early church was persecuted. The early church had to scatter out of the city of Jerusalem. But what did we learn about last week together? That when they did, they went about preaching the word. They went about preaching Jesus Christ. Paul, who at times was run out of towns, who faced some heavy persecution, and yet he was a man that kept standing, kept striving, and just stayed with it. He would not bend. He would not give in. It's interesting over in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2. Listen to what he said in verse, beginning in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God I mean, they've already suffered, they've already been mistreated, but when they came to Thessalonica, they still had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He came out of opposition, he walked into the city of Thessalonica, and he walked into the midst of opposition, but he said, we just kept preaching the gospel. We just kept advancing, striving together, standing for it, staying with it. And he wouldn't even change it. He said, I'm not going to use flattering speech. I'm not in the pretext of greed. We didn't come seeking glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles we might have asserted our authority. We just kept coming among you preaching Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to do. In fact, if you go back, if you remember... When Paul and Barnabas separated, they separated over John Mark and they did because Paul didn't want to take John Mark because if you remember, John Mark had gone out with them the previous journey and he didn't get very far and he turned around and went back home. And Paul would not, didn't want to have him because Paul had felt that he didn't stay with them to stand and strive for the gospel. And that's why Paul the way he did at that time against Barnabas. But it was important to Paul that one is willing to stand for the gospel, strive for the gospel, stay with the gospel. But there's one other area that you need to see and this last one is fitting because if we're being faithful to the other three if we're being faithful to stand if we're being faithful to strive together for the gospel, if we're being faithful to stick together, to stay with it, the fourth one's gonna come eventually. And it's suffering together for the gospel. Go back to Philippians chapter one. Verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, But also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul, look, he understood that if you live by convictions and out of those convictions you stand and you're striving together in the communication of the gospel and you are staying together, you have a commitment to this. He knew suffering was going to come. And this is what he's encouraging them about, that he wants to hear, that they're suffering together for the gospel. Essentially, when you look at verses 29 and 30, especially verse 29, that, that people, we get excited and think, and rightfully so in some sense of looking at this and saying, look, there is faith. God grants us faith. Faith is a gift from God. But we don't talk very much at all about the rest of the verse, which is actually the main thrust of the verse. The main thrust of the verse is suffering. Suffering is a gift from God. Suffering is granted from God. It's a gift. Notice what he says. It is to you it has been granted. Now for Christ's sake. That is we're to be suffering for the sake of Christ. Not for my foolishness. Not for my sinfulness. But it is granted for us that we suffer for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is something gifted, granted by God. And this is what the gift of suffering does for us. Number one, it reveals that we have true faith. Suffering will reveal that you have true faith. Because you'll want to stay with it. But not only it will reveal that you have true faith, also suffering is a gift from God, it's something granted by God, because it also will refine our true faith. You see, we know our faith is not as strong as it should be. We know no one here has perfect faith. We all have weaknesses in our faith. And what suffering will do is it will come along and refine our faith, expose those weaknesses, and begin to strengthen us in the Lord. Suffering together for the gospel. Let me just remind you of some things. Go back with me for a moment to the gospel of John. Go back to the gospel of John for a moment. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is letting them know, you're going to face persecution. You're going to face suffering in this life. Verse down in chapter 16, he says in verse 2, they will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Look over in the book of Acts for just a moment. Go to Acts chapter 5 for just a second. In Acts chapter 5, here's where Peter and John had been suffering, they had been thrown in prison, they had been beaten. And it says in verse 41, So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They considered it worthy. They rejoiced that they were able to suffer for the name of Christ. Look over in Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, when Paul had gone back to Lystra, to Aconium, to Antioch, in verse 22, he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Like, this life isn't going to be easy. Suffering's going to come. We will enter the kingdom of God through these sufferings, through the tribulations. As Paul says over in Second Timothy, chapter three, verse twelve, that all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. How can he make such a statement? How can he make such a universal statement? He can make such a universal statement because he can basically base that off of what we read there in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know it hated me first. The world hates Christ. They hate Christ. There's not neutrality here. And I hope you will understand that the unbeliever is not neutral towards God. They're not neutral towards Christ. They're not neutral towards the gospel. They are hostile. They have a sinful heart that opposes that. That's why he can say, if you desire to live godly, that as you desire to stand for the gospel, stand for the truth, strive for the gospel, and to stay with it, you will suffer. But he reminds them there in Philippians 1 and let it be a reminder to us as well that they were just going through some of the same things that he had gone through and others had gone through in the past and others were going through in the present. They weren't alone. And beloved, we're not alone either. Now as we wrap this up together, And Paul opened up this passage. He said only. And what he means by that only is he, he, he wanted to drive home to them that this, this was to be the main thing. The main thing there for the church at Philippi was live your life together in such a way that you are displaying the transforming power of the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ. And you do that by standing together. You do that by striving together. You do that by the staying, sticking together. You do that by suffering together. This is a life that is worthy of the gospel. Because as I said uh, in the beginning of the message, these were things they were doing. Look, they had already experienced Suffering because they were standing for the gospel. But Paul was beginning to hear that there were some things creeping in, some selfishness in the church, and that's what he's going to address when we look again in chapter 2 next week, where he starts to say, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility or mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Have the same attitude that you see in Christ. There was strife that was beginning to pop up in the church, because in verse 14 he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. To prove yourself, to be blameless, innocent in this perverse generation that lives around you. You see, beloved, just think about it like this. It's similar to us as a nation. I mean, as a nation, we have differences. And when we are usually in peacetime... That's when these differences come out. That is that's when you have the the internal strife in our nation that takes place. But then when an attack comes, our nation will tend to drop all of that and stand together and strive together and stay together and willing to go out and suffer and die together for the cause that is there. Because we know that we're in a battle. We know that this is what is our top priority. And that's the picture that Paul is painting for them. He's wanting to remind them, you're in a battle. And if you're busy, out, just think about it, if you're busy standing post, and if you're busy striving and advancing in the gospel, and you're busy doing all of these things, it's hard to have time then to get into the, the strife that is there. He's saying, advance, move forward. Move forward. Because, look, you're, you're taking bullets coming at you. You're having people shooting at you. And as they're shooting at us, we stick together and we move forward. And we don't, we don't lose our post. We stay there. We stay with it. But when we're not advancing, we're not advancing the gospel, we're not standing put, This is when these things begin to creep in. This is what Paul was just encouraging them and warning them about. And beloved, I want to use it to encourage us as well and even warn us as well. And so where this starts for us is again with a surrender to the gospel. Have you surrendered to the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Are you a part of the army of Christ? Are you on the team of Christ? Have you truly repented and put your faith in Christ? If you have, then let's get busy, as he says here, advancing the gospel. Praying for souls, crying out to God. Coming together to worship and to be equipped for the advancing of the gospel. Striving together for the advancing of the gospel. Standing firm for the convictions of God's word. And knowing that at times we will suffer. God doesn't promise that everybody's going to suffer to the same degree, to the same level. But there will be some suffering that will happen. Oh, beloved, may this be the passion of our heart in all that we do. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer.